I'm Mulgey, and you're listening to the Right On Track podcast. Free the roads for real tyranny! Greetings, one and all. Uh, do not change your podcast feed. This is not a hallucination. Welcome to the Right On Track podcast episode 68 uh my name's tom denham and i'm one of the original uh three the trio who brought you this podcast um now i do have to apologize it's been a very long time i also have to apologize for the background noise i live very close to an airport in my new apartment so we've got that to compete with but we're going to keep going um I do have to apologise uh, for how long it's been uh, in between episodes. Um, the matter of fact is that uh, myself, Connor, Parry, Lachlan and others um, all live very busy lives and uh, we work, we study. But before that out of the way, we're here, we've got a brand new spanking episode of Rhyme and Track to wrap your ears around. Um, it's going to be great and we've got some great content um, lined up for you. One of the reasons these episodes take so long to put together in contrast to series one to seven is that there's so many highly produced segments um, and we figured out that this has become quite difficult um, and so we may return to something a bit more familiar when we get to series nine, but we've still got a little bit of series eight to go. And we needed all the manpower we could get. So I relied on some of my friends. You may know them as Califan and Steam Powered Cyborg. And they're going to be reviewing two more episodes of Series 8. Hi everyone and welcome back to Right On Track. This is something a little bit different because... I'm not the host that you're used to. My name is Josh, also known as Califan, and I am here with Christopher, steam-powered cyborg. Hello. Hello. And yeah, how are, this is how quite are you strange doing? because yeah, you'd think this was a completely different show, but yeah, this is kind of um, how we'd say a new era to the series, and they kind of brought us on because yeah. With their friends. As you can tell, I am British, so some probably some probably hate me already, but yes. <laughs> oh I am I am this guy who just sounds way younger than he actually is, and I make this series called Thomas Rewritten. We basically it's basically about rewriting a lot of the um, episodes from the Kid era, nitrogen era, and um, I've been doing this for about five years. I've also do a bit of art and voice acting on the sides, and yeah, I've been a lot of that ever since. So. It sounds like you're the perfect guest for for today's episode and the episodes that we're discussing and a lot of the points that I have about them. Uh, I'm not really the... here to be covering these episodes through my knowledge yet. Future me might be later <laughs> on. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um, well, again, like I say, I'm Josh, Cali fan, uh, probably best known for the series I did called Thomas Talk. 
Um, and I also have a very popular Roblox Chuggington game. And I was, I was about to say, I kind of know you for a lot of your contributions to the Chuggington fandom. Chuggington's a pretty good <laughs> so we won't have any slander in the audience. Thank you very much. No, absolutely not. And I mean, I'm Cali fan. Cali from Chuggington. That's where it comes from. Um, so yeah, very thrilled to be taking part as kind of a guest host on Right on Track, filling in uh, for the regular hosts. Uh, I believe there are some other guest hosts coming in as well. And we are all talking about Season 8. Oh, Season 8. Well, this is... Yippee! <laughs> exactly. This is a bit of a, a controversial one in the fandom as of late. There are a lot of people that feel nostalgic for the season, and, and that's fair enough. You know, it's... It, it came out, it came out when I was like five or six years old and I watched it as a kid. I was about six when I watched it. Back then, I didn't really mind it. Thomas was Thomas. But as I got older, most of it, yeah, it didn't really hold up. There's still some decent episodes in there. A lot of them in this season, mind you. But, um... Well, that's, that's true. Yeah. The, the strongest hit episodes are probably in the eighth season. Um, and and you know what? In my opinion, we're starting off with one of the episodes that I think is actually one of the strongest of the hit era. Oh, yeah. Now you think about it. Yes, it is. I think it's a really kind of fun episode. It is called Halloween. And in this episode, Thomas and Emily are tricked by two devious diesels on Halloween. But when they got to the smelter's yard, it was very spooky. Oh my, whispered Emily. Oh dear, hissed Thomas. They puffed slowly through the piles of jagged steel and twisted scrap. The air grew hotter and smoke grew thicker. Harry and Bert were lurking nearby. The two diesels saw the chance to scare a couple of steamies. When Thomas and Emily rolled by, they moaned and groaned. It sounded spooky. What was that? snapped Emily. You said there was no such thing as ghosts. Silly make-believe, you said, gasped Thomas. Suddenly, a truck began to shudder and shake. Cinders and ashes, cried Thomas. Help, wailed Emily. That's our ghost. Let's get away from here. They didn't know Harry and Bert had been bumping the flatbed's buffers. The two naughty diesels were having great fun. So you guys just heard a clip from the season eight episode Halloween. Ooh, um, you know what? I I kind of remember this episode from when I was a kid, but I don't remember it too much. You know, I, I it stands out to me now, but as a kid, I I always I, I enjoyed the few times that I watched it, but it's not one of the more memorable ones for me. Yeah, I do remember a couple of visuals from it. I do remember that um, the scene where Arian Burt's tease Thomas. I remember that beautiful sunset shot where Thomas and Emily go through. I remember the whole climax of the episode still. 
other humor spits. <laughs> you know, and, and it's probably it's probably the, the scariest episode of the eighth season as well. I mean, you've got that scrap Gordon that goes by right off the top. Yeah, it's, you a, know. it's got a very interesting combination of different parts. It looks, from the wit heap, it seems to just be Gordon's body combined with Murdoch's chassis and uh, City of Truro's tender. Something for a while, I kind of had kind of that um, handsome... You know how some rail fans might know that Murdoch's class, the 9Fs, had a couple of members who had this um, certain steam valve um, similar to something that um, I think Lorenzo of Big World Big Adventures had a space as like, had this sort of reverse piston or steam valve. I can't remember for the life of me, but... It didn't really have the smoke deflectors and something about this sort of ghost engine. It kind of looks like a botched Dalby version of that engine. <laughs> Interesting. See, I didn't even pick up on what you're picking up on. Yeah, I just thought it was a scrap Gordon. <laughs> but it's creepy. Yeah, it was just my imagination going a little wild. It tends to do that. So you'll see that in my <laughs> series. But anyway, um, on to the episode. Yeah, you know what? It's again, it's it's an episode that to me, there are some shots in this that could very well be confused for season seven, right? Like season eight is is a very unique season, especially with the scrap lighting of the interior of the scrapyards. <laughs> no, those shots look straight out of season seven, right? And and as a kid watching season eight for the first time, even I recognized, oh, there are some changes here. They've made some key changes to the show. Um, and, and it feels very different. Like the whole season feels very different than everything that came before it. As a kid, I kind of accepted seasons one to seven as like, you know, that's, that's one part of the show. And to me, there weren't a ton of differences, right? And to me, it was just like, oh, it gets newer as it goes on. Season eight was the season where like, no, no, this feels like a little bit of a different show. And I think this episode is one of the episodes that actually feels like it could fit in with the era that came before it and and the visuals to it are very very unique and stand out to me uh as as an adult unlike a lot of the time they you they use their typical camera angles to their advantage like some of, i think they use the very low at the bottom of at the very edge of the um, um below the engines camera angles pretty well in the chase scene and Speaking of the chase scene, I know that a lot of people do have their thoughts on the music from this era, and a lot of it doesn't really hit to me, but some of the tunes for the main characters do sound kind of nice for what they are, but the theme in the runaway scene in this episode, that is, when going back to this episode again, it was surprisingly kind of haunting because when you get to the runaway, besides the usual, very, very quiet in tempo for the most part, violins, you also had this sort of very sudden dun, dun sort of synth set. Do sound like the sorts that you hear in a set in a few 
80s songs. Like, first one that comes to mind is the first few chords in Michael Jackson's Bad. I don't know. It's, it sounds similar to that. You know, like, the types that go before yeah. the do, 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 do. But yeah, that's really just brings the a very unique feel to this particular theme. Really brings the really brings the atmosphere to the episode. It's great. No, that no, there is a really good atmosphere. That's a good word, atmosphere, uh, throughout this whole episode. And and I'm glad that you brought up the shots, right? Because to me, the things that stand out here and kind of stand out in the eighth season is, you know, they're kind of just uh, getting their their footing right with it. It's, yeah, yeah. It's the first season to have Stephen Asquith as the full-time uh, director on the series. And and you can see that he's playing around with his angles a little bit. I love the shots that reveal Arian and Bert, right? That whole sequence, the way the camera moves is, it feels so unique to this episode. And they're, they're types of angles and movements that we haven't really seen in the model series before. Um, and it reels, the whole thing just feels really well put together and um, it, it moves really well. It's engaging, you know, and and part of it's, I, I don't think it would actually fit in. I know I said that it feels like it could fit in with the season six or seven episodes, um, but I mean, it's still got some of the season eight qualities to it. You oh, know, it's still... They are just very just developing this season yeah and it's like it's it's going the direction that it ends up going in in season 9 10 11 but it's kind of in this weird midway point and i think this is a perfect episode to demonstrate that um you know it's it's our last bit of um the typical it's our last taste of what you'd call the Dunhead Spooks and the Haunted Henrys that we'll ever see in a long while. Possibly ever in a visual Thomas media. No, that's very true. And, and it kind of is, it's a good transition episode, in my opinion. Even in the Brenner era, like, bless them, they did try very much. But they wouldn't be able to pull a Haunted Henry again because, you know, I've always felt that the... The higher-ups were just breathing down their necks, so they couldn't really do something. He's the sense of things. He's the scare the kids, you know? Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that's significant is this is kind of the first season with, um, at least for North American audiences, a new storyteller. And I, I know it's still Angelus in the UK, um, but even his narration changes a little bit, right? Oh, in, yeah. in the eighth season. And, and I think, you know, <laughs> I don't think the narration in, in both dubs necessarily changes for the better. Um, I watched the U.S. dub for this episode just because that's what I'm used to. And there's a line that Emily says that Michael Brown goes, the ghost, it got me when the tart falls on her. And in my mind, it's just like the delivery of that is pretty bad. <laughs> like, there are some lines Um I think with the new writing and, and a bit of a new direction on the storytelling in both dubs that, that don't necessarily land as well as they might have in previous seasons of the show. Oh, yeah. And um, with Michael Brandon, people just seem to find him fun to watch just for kind of how hilariously bad or how he'll 
hilarious in general. Some of his voices are, and how he delivers certain lines. Well, again, it's just a completely different take on on the storyteller than you know what what came before, right? Alec Baldwin and and George Carlin and Ringo. I mean, had very different. Um, takes on oh. on what they were doing and and i think in this episode you know it, it's pretty consistent michael this might be you know one of michael brandon's better ones but there is still a few lines where i'm like uh, okay <laughs> you know um <laughs> but and, and, you know it, it's like what i've noticed watching these is is with michael brandon it's like he's he's going over the top and michael angelis feels like he's not he's almost not giving it enough you know, there's there's not that middle. He's just has the same voice that he always has when narrating that uses the same tones for the same scenarios. And yeah, this is coming from the guy who grew up with Mike Langelis for years. Um is it okay to just uh, move on to another little um scene that I wanted to talk about in my mental notes? Absolutely. When, the, when the, this kind of ties into how people thought differently in different eras, well, when the engines just come to the sheds and you see that that controller has watched the whole thing, arrives at the sheds out of the car in his pajamas, I just um, I know that back then geography of Serdor didn't really matter at all, so. They never really consider this, but with how later maps show that the fat controller lives at Wellsworth, I can you just take into consideration how in this episode the fat controller had to drive all the way from Wellsworth to Titmouth in his pajamas. Did he drive or did do his drivers drive? I thought that's what his assistant. <laughs> it's inconsistent even in the show whether or not he drives or his assistants drive. He just. Either way, he had to drive a good distance. <laughs> I feel bad for his assistance. And, goodness. <laughs> goodness. Where does his house actually take place? Because I remember the only times I remember seeing the exterior of his manor was um, in this one shot of the Great Discovery when Harold just swoops in and tells him, Thomas has discovered a hidden town. And the whole surrounding area is just very bushy and Lots of tall trees around there, so I kind of imagined it being a good distance away from the railway line. And, but now this changes everything. There must be some sort of view of the railway line where the fat entrologist saw Thomas, Emily, Arian, Bert going past, possibly screaming from a distance at night, and he just just happens to be outside. Well, my critique of of Sir Topham Hatt uh, as an adult is he's literally in charge of this huge railway with a lot of engines and he drives everywhere. He never uses it. That, I think that's, that's my recent concerns and complaints about Sir Topham Hatt. But I love... In about eight more years, he'll... That's eventually. eventually so it'll get the the gist but but i want to go back to the shots and and i love that you brought up him in his pajamas because the shot that kind of cranes up from his feet to his face 
you know, like really uh, showing off his pajamas and making it almost a reveal is is hilarious. And it's like unintentionally hilarious, but it's also kind of the tone of the episode is that this is a silly episode. And that <laughs> and that move. Yeah. That again, that crane up, that slow crane up over his pajamas just kind of adds to it. It feels like directorially this episode stands it, uh, out. It's like the sort of it's exactly the sort of scenario where a kid was just um annoying another kid while having while the kids are just sneaking out trying to have a midnight feast yeah. and the, the, it just wakes up the parents. So it's exactly so I actually enjoyed this episode, <laughs> um, you know, more than I, I think I have any other season eight episode. I mean, it's it's fun if you can kind of get over again. It's, it's a new it's a change right from the seasons that came before. It is a little bit more childish. Uh, the realism of the railway isn't taken nearly as seriously. But if you can kind of put that aside and suspend your disbelief a little bit and just allow yourself to have some fun. This is a good episode to watch. Oh, yes. It's just um. It's just, it's just that sort of um, season where you just have to um, just think about, hey, maybe this episode does take place somewhere else in the timeline. You don't have to take the character arcs way too seriously. Besides that, it's just, depending on where you see it, it just makes it easy for yourself. And when you do that, or if you don't do that, it's just a very fun episode it's got the characters right just about just about to be somewhere that has a game so i want to give this episode i want to give this episode an eight out of ten for me for those reasons what are your thoughts honestly i just say um a nine out of ten because wow officials the officials don't get me wrong a lot of his era visuals don't really do it for me. I'm not saying that they were lazy in this era. It's just their sort of modeling style doesn't really hit home to me. Because, but um, it's sort of the, the music is a step up from what I'm used to. And the characters, the characters definitely are portrayed as good as we can get them in this era. Thomas is still cheeky. Percy is still as frightened as expected, given his past experiences. Emily, well, she's Emily. She's my favorite character. So, oh wow, I didn't know that. If credit to that, and Arian Bert, yeah, they are just as naughty as they have been, and you can still see a little bit of their um, psychotic sort of um ways in the sort of tricks that they pull in this episode trying to do what they can with the um, punishment that they are given <laughs> that's how I, I, I kind of portrays their cheekiness throughout series six to seven and yeah nine out of ten for me for this episode lots of good points the atmosphere is the main selling point of this episode yeah it definitely is it's a very good transition episode to go from one era to another now, let's move on to an episode that I don't actually think is that good. <laughs> so we're going from, uh, I think, one of the strongest of season eight to possibly uh, one of the weakest, but not the weakest. Uh, this episode is about a little brown tram engine. 
His name is Toby, and he is very old and not strong. And in this episode, Gordon just decides to bully Toby for being old and not that strong. This is You Can Do It, Toby. One morning, Toby was delivering some milk trucks. He puffed across the island and up Gordon's Hill. Gordon's Hill was very steep. Toby puffed hard. It was a long climb. Just then, Gordon arrived at the bottom of the hill. But today the express was heavy, and Gordon had to wait for Edward to help. Bother, huffed Gordon. Soon, Edward puffed to the rescue. He buffered up behind Gordon. Edward pushed, and Gordon pulled. As has been the status quo for years, Edward has been helping Gordon at the banner on Gordon's Hill, and Toby on occasion has done that, but um, Gordon really doesn't think that Toby is suitable for that sort of role, and he just thinks that he is old. A very way too old for this job. Way too old for anything. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting that, that that's the clip that that we chose because you know i think this is the only time really in the hit era that i look at the gordon's hill shots and go oh those are the same angles as the classic series you know again in this in this weird transition season where you're going from one era to another and they're still kind of doing what they used to do but doing it differently i mean another part where continuity is kind of out the window because Many people really do feel that there was this... Gordon's Hill was always these sort of gradient that goes up for distance and then straight away right down. Except there was no flat part right at the top where you can just soar without gravity pulling you down either side. Yeah, this is where that design changed because before this episode, did, did you ever see that that kind of top of the hill well we kind of did but um it's i remember it's the first thing that came to mind was that bit at the top where gordon just went i've done it i've done it in edward and gordon with that curve that um goes up the gradient and then back down now, I, I'm trying really hard to see these episodes from a kid's perspective because I am an adult and, of course, I'm going to think differently and, and I'm not the target audience. I'll give them the benefits of the doubt in this single scene because if they did try to work with the radians that they did find to use in later episodes, one of the single, insistent, for the most part, bits of continuity in this era... It might have just been the case of difficulty working with the with the sort of terrain that they had to work with, with running shots. But flat, flat surfaces might have worked a little, might have been a bit more convenient for them. I don't understand, though, you know, again, uh, trying to think of this as, as a kid, but uh, but I'm an adult. 
at some point, I mean, Gordon's Hill is such a troublesome thing and they probably lose a lot of money <laughs> on the trains being delayed and having to send another. Tra- at what point do they just like dig through it and make it a tunnel? You know, like, and I think especially now it's in the hit era, that gradient becomes way steeper. It is a very good point, then. But um, to be honest, I think it might just be the case where you just have to, yeah, this illusion of entertainment where you just think that, oh, well, maybe they've had more successful trips over at Gordon's Hill off screen. But to some people... Possibly. If it didn't happen on screen, it didn't happen. To the wit he uses out there, how many times in the show did an engine get stuck on Gordon's Hill? A lot. <laughs> it was used <laughs> all throughout the show. Um, but but you know, my, my, my problems with this episode aren't just like Gordon's Hill. You know, I think that's just a series wide thing. Yeah. My, my problem is, I mean, the story of this episode is Toby is old and Thomas needs to tell him that he can do things and Gordon bullies Toby and Toby doesn't care and he does it. You know, like, it's just, it's, it's kind of a boring concept. You know, like, I, oh, this episode. It's not exactly a new one, but I'll give them credit for being one of those episodes where Thomas is the voice of reason as opposed to Edward. Fair enough. But... Even here, because he is the one who's being the regular banker. One, the one that Gordon's putting on a higher pedestal than Toby. But even as I watched this episode in preparation for doing this, the thought crossed my mind of like, wait, have I even seen this episode? Like, is, have I just discovered an episode of Thomas I haven't seen? But no, I, I saw this episode as a kid. I, it's just so unmemorable. And there's the, the plot doesn't really do like there's not a lot to it. Like I did. I explained it. It's simple. Toby doesn't, you know, he's old and and, and Gordon makes fun of him and. He has to build his confidence. Exactly. It's the sort of thing that you might have seen before, except in episodes where other engines treat Toby as this dirty old man. He does bite back. That would have been a little better. But um, at the same time, I also thought about him. I also thought about this episode taking place a little earlier in the timeline, like... Like I said a little earlier about Series 8 episodes, this would be okay if you put it in the time, in the parts of history where Toby is still a relatively new engine. I think something, sometime a bit before Dirty Objects. And after Toby tries to save Gordon from the hill. It might have been just the case where Toby just grew a backbone after that. Hence why he was just much more sharp when it came to dealing with James later yeah. on. <laughs> but yeah, it might be a stretch to some. I don't well, know. Well, no, that's a fair point. I think I think what's interesting to me is that it's, it's clear, you know, again, this is... They're still kind of figuring out what they want to do with the show. Um... I mean, we just talked about how great visually Halloween was. And this episode, in my opinion, really suffers visually. And, and the scene to me, like the big 
climatic point of the episode where Toby helps Gordon and shows that he is strong, shows that he is still really useful, is, you know, visually, I don't get that at all from that scene. Like, there is, you know, like, it, it, it's it's talking about how Toby's puffing and chuffing and, and it's this shot from the bottom of the hill and Percy goes past and way up at the top of the hill, like tiny in the frame, you can see the back of Toby and the storytellers talking about how strong he is. Funny because I do like the shots in this scene myself because I don't know, it's kind of the sort of scope that we get out of um, season six to eight from this from episodes like this that really draw me into certain visuals but um what really breaks it down here for me at least is definitely the music as we just came from an episode where the music was good right to an episode where it just went back to being really boring yeah that's that's the other thing is you know there's, there's just nothing special about this episode. <laughs> like visually, it's not interesting. I don't think I don't think that they did. I I think there was so much more potential, especially in that big scene at the end, that they just didn't get near to achieving with the camera. I I agree that the music's kind of, you know, it's it, it's simple, right and. We do have several other episodes where an old man tries to show his worth to young men and other engines. Um, sorry. Um, one of them was even in this season. Other people have talked about it earlier. You, Edward the Great was about an older engine beating Oh, I remember that engine. episode. That episode stands out to me from when I was a kid. <laughs> yes. It's one of those, and that's kind of had the cracks of the character choice, how they portray the characters, and how, in spite of um, how they, how, yeah, how Tom might have pointed out that um, the tortoise and the hare story was used before in Jack and the Pack, it was still kind of, it was still kind of what made people really enjoy this episode more, because they were Back then and still today, they gravitate more to the engines than the pack members. No offense to the people who worked on Jack the Pack, I still love them. But um, yeah, what I'm saying is that episode had that tortoise in the hair image and Edward and the better music and slightly better sets. And this episode had yeah. um, just Toby pulling the milk train. It's just not that interesting of an episode. Jordan's Hill. And and again, I watched the U.S. dub of this episode. Michael Brandon's Toby voice does not do that character many favors. <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Michael Brandon as Toby. The infamous voice where he, oh. this infamous scene where I've seen in memes where he gave Toby this nasally voice like, oh, oh, help, help. That's one scene from Saved You that I've seen. Uh, it's not not my not my thing. Um, I don't know. Again, again, you talked about Edward the Great being such a great episode, and and I think 
again, that, that's one that stands out to me as a kid that I really enjoyed watching. This one, I completely forget that it exists half the time. And then there's Michelangelo's narration for, he kind of, I remember he made, gave Toby pretty much a similar voice to how he did to Percy and James in this era. Not exactly the sort of screaming sort of tone to his voice, but the same similar pitch, similar accents. Which is, you know, a very notable and iconic voice, but maybe not the best voice. <laughs> um, maybe I can't do it. And then, he, and then episodes after... Yeah, you can tell that was another bit of experimental elements because he doesn't really speak like that later on. It just, like, and just makes him a little more gentle. And I do like that. Fair enough. Well, again, like I say, and like you say, this is a very kind of uh, simple episode. It's been done before. Um, I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10. What are you thinking? Um... Definitely five, yeah. Yeah, that's the Alright, we're we're in agreement. Virtual high five. <laughs> you can't tell, but I did a high fives the air. I did it too. I, I felt it. I felt it. Okay. Well, that's it for us today. These two episodes, Halloween and You Can Do It, Toby. Uh, we will be back. We do have a little bit more to do uh, later on. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. We've got a couple more episodes to do. But um, yeah, until then, we'll be right back after these messages. Thanks, Christopher. Hi. I'm Mike O'Donnell, one of the composers of the original Thomas the Tank Engine theme, and I'm here to tell you that I have released a selection of re-recorded themes and songs from the classic shows in a series of albums called The Engine Themes. These albums include a variety of classic themes and songs from the original TV series, as well as a few new compositions. You can purchase these albums on CD or digital download, as well as posters and pin badges. Have a look online at modmusic.co.uk. And for a special offer for Right On Track listeners, you can use the special code ROT20 for a 20% discount on all digital downloads. Be sure to enter the code when making your purchase. Thank you for your support and happy listening. Take care and stay safe. Thank you to Callie Fan or Josh and Steam Powered Cyborg or Christopher uh, for those reviews. Um, it's always fascinating hearing different people's perspectives on these episodes because each of us grew up with different eras of Thomas, as uh, the guys pointed out in this review. I grew up very much on series one to six and later seven, but other people grew up completely on the hit era. So it's really interesting to hear different opinions and different perspectives on these uh halloween is my personal favorite out of that selection but now it's time for my segment loco nation and this one is very special uh this is about a railway that's very close to my heart 
the Puffin Billy Railway. And I thought, how can I capture this in such a, a segment? Um, so what I did, I thought of people that I think of when I think of Puffin Billy. And I thought they were the best people to speak to. So we invited them on the podcast. We did just that. And here's some of the conversation we had. First of all, could you say your name for me, please, and what you do at Puffin Billy, and how long have you been involved? Yeah, so my name's Chris Tasker. I'm a steam and diesel locomotive driver at Puffin Billy Railway. And my involvement, uh, probably as a real true volunteer, started about 20 years ago. I guess I've kind of grown up on the railway and around the railway. Um, through my dad's involvement, which extends right back to 1956. Um, my name's Ockham Campbell. I've been involved with the railway basically since birth. When I turned 10, I got into a junior volunteers team that was for primary and early high school age students, where we get our first real exposure to the railway, and that was doing the sort of odds and ends. So there were some train jobs like cleaning the locomotives. There were others that were things like raking up leaves and painting and all that sort of stuff. When I turned 18, I started training and became qualified as a guard. So as a guard, I direct the starting and stopping of trains, the shunting and unattended stations, and I am the ultimate person responsible for the safety and welfare of the passengers on board. And I've been doing that for about 12 years. So yeah, 20 years formally volunteering. Um, but a lifetime of association with the railway. So I, I think that that speaks into how did you hear about it, but what, what was it, I think, extending on that for yourself, what was it like growing up, kind of being around the railway? Yeah, I guess it was something that I I kind of saw as, as normal because that's what we did. Dad was involved in kind of all aspects of the railway, but particularly in the um, signal and telegraph division. So I've got lots of memories of going along with Dad where he'd be working on some of the telephone exchanges and a lot of the back-of-house stuff that no one really sees at Puffing Billy Railway. Um, there's all these aspects that were fairly pioneering in terms of communication technology and some signalling technology that was all tried out on the Puffing Billy Railway. A lot of the early applications of train-to-base radio and some of the signalling technologies in, in level crossing detection and all that sort of stuff trialled at Puffing Billy even before they were used on the, the big railways in Victoria and other places in Australia. So I can remember going into like little telephone exchanges under Mundara and, and Dad would be working away at the telephone exchange, the PABX under there, and my sister and I would be playing around in the, um, in the grounds underneath Mundara and down towards the, the Mombolt Creek that runs there. Um, and also the same in the good shed at Menzies Creek. A lot of people wouldn't even know that there is a good shed at the, at the up end, the Melbourne end of Menzies Creek. I do remember Dad working in there a lot on various different telephone equipment and stuff. And, and I remember hearing the train whistle blowing and being like I was that young that I was a bit frightened of the train coming in so I'd, I'd always run around the back of the good shed there at Menzies Creek. I don't actually remember my first experience. I was a month old. I got a train ride. I remember, well I'm told, I can't say I remember but we only had one car at the time and so dad drove it to get to the railway in time. Meanwhile mum thought it would be a nice surprise to take me on a on a suburban train, a metro train 
from where we lived at the time through to Puffing Billy and we met down on the platform and I got my first ride from there. And I guess that sort of um, piqued my interest. The the hobby, I guess, has grown from there. So again, at the young age, sort of helping dad clean the locos, then moving on to the more structured volunteering programs for the younger people with the interest in the place before then moving into the more um, formal positions that require internal qualifications. Can you give us a bit of a an, an idea of a snapshot of the railway's beginnings, how did it start, and where has it come up to till now? Construction on Puffing Billy originally started in 1899. It went from uh, Upper Ferntree Gully through to Gembrook, which was a distance of 30, 35 kilometres. In Victoria, there's broad gauge railways of 1600 mils or five feet three inches. Puffing Billy was one of four or five experimental narrow gauge lines um, across Victoria that were built to a narrow gauge of two foot six inches or 762 mils between the rails. That was done as a cost cutting measure so that you could go up steeper hills and around tighter corners. The railway was the lifeblood of all the communities to whom it passed. So as well as carrying passengers, it would carry mail, it would carry potatoes. There were major potato growing, and there is still major potato growing that happens in the Gembrook area at the end of the line. Also timber, beer for the pub, you name it, it carried it. In the 1920s, the railway got very popular with day trippers from Melbourne. And so a fleet of dedicated excursion carriages were built. These carriages were unique in that they didn't actually have any glass in the windows. They had two horizontal bars and you could sit on the sills of the carriage and dangle your legs out the side, which is a tradition that has continued for almost continuously 100 years since then. Another reason I guess the railway was so popular is because at the time the competition was the horse and cart. There was no cars or buses or trucks as we know it today in the 1940s however there was and so that's that was the beginning of the end I guess for the railway and then in August of 1953 there was a landslide um, between Belgrave and Menzies Creek and the Victorian government railways who were the operators at the time basically used that as the excuse to stop operations this thing's losing thousands of pounds a month and what's the point in keeping it going In 1953, there was a competition run by one of the Melbourne newspapers at the time, The Young Sun, and it was basically giving away tickets to say one last goodbye to Puffing Billy. That one day was so successful it turned into two, and then those two days turned into continuous operations for about four or five years, during which time a preservation society was formed, which still functions to this day, with the purpose of preserving Puffing Billy as it was as best as possible back in the 1910s, 1920s. 1958, it actually stopped because at that time, Belgrave, which was one of the communities that Puffing Billy served, was a major growth area. And so the Victorian Railways, who still technically owned and operated the line, made the decision to stop running Puffing Billy, but we'll look at reopening it in stages. It stopped in 1962. So we just recently celebrated our 60-year anniversary um, of the railway reopening between Belgrave and Menzies Creek. In 1965, it went through to Emerald, 1975 to Lakeside, and October of 1998, it opened all the way back to Jembrook again. Puffing Billy as it stands now is, I'm going to use a regulatory term because I did some work for the rail safety regulator at one point. Um, Puffing Billy is an isolated, narrow gauge tourist and heritage steam railway. 
that means there's no interaction with any other railway. The end-to-end length of the track as it stands now is about 24 kilometres. And when you include passing lanes, sidings, infrastructure and all that sort of stuff, um, the actual route mileage that Puffing Billy is responsible for is close to 30 k's. In the years before the unprecedented times that I'm sure we all know about, Puffing Billy was carrying more than half a million passengers a year and was one of the 10 busiest passenger railways anywhere in Australia. And that also made it busier than some of the mainline commercial operators, such as regional Western Australia and Journey Beyond to operate the GAN, the Indian Pacific and the Overland. The typical Puffing Billy locomotive is known as, I guess, amongst us, uh, the NA-class loco. Tell me about these. Like, wh- where did they come about? How did they become Puffing Billy? Yeah, it's, a, it's probably a really interesting story. Uh, they're about an 1890s kind of era design from Auburn Locomotive Works in Philadelphia. I think the first two here were really started running in about 1898, I think it was. They variously had different nicknames along the way and I think different that there were four narrow gauge lines in Victoria and on the different lines they each had different names as well some of them were hissing Ginnies or Pollyland I think Wangarad and Whitfield were, they were known as the Pollies in Pollyland somehow I think the the moniker of Puffing Billy was applied to them there, there was a quite a few years before I think back in probably the 1850s ish there was a um or maybe even before in the UK there was a one of the very early locomotives was named Puffing Billy and somehow that got applied to to our locomotives up in the in the Dandenongs so basically the the Victorian Railways procured these two the first one and two a um, one was a simple engine and two was a compound, had a Vorkine compound system on it where it used the steam twice to, to drive the engine forward. And they came out and there was apparently two, there was apparently spares enough to basically build two, uh, two extra ones. So two, uh, 3A and 4A were built, again another simple and another compound. Eventually they decided that the compounds weren't worth the extra effort and so they went with all simple uh, locomotives. The other 15 of them were built by the Newport workshops. And there's still a number of them that survive on Puffin Billy today as well as a few other locomotives as well. Could we go through each of those? Yeah, so I guess going through the the NAs, we've got uh, number 3A, which was one of the originals, if you like. It is now Plinth Discovery Centre at Lakeside, or or what's left of it. 6A is another early one that's currently under uh, full overhaul in the Belgrave workshops. That one was painted green, and and last time it came out, they effectively backdated it as much as they could in its appearance so that it had a lot of the early features of of the locomotives that eventually were changed out over time. Bigger windows, uh, lower bunker, ash ejectors on the smoke box, different funnel cap and a few other features. Three, six, eight. Eight A had a modified front end, so you often see there's a different funnel on that one and it's got quite a different sound to it, to the exhaust of it. It's much more woofy. That I always remember that as being the the black the black engine. It was Ron Picking's locomotive and always had 
polished up uh, number plates and everything. Still runs around in black, but it's got it, got the white painted number plates on it now. Then we've got Seven, the <laughs> what some people refer to as the real Puffing Billy, but it probably because it's had quite a history and an association, particularly with the Puffing Billy, the, the upper fentry gully to, to Jembrook line. And it hauled many of the trains in the preservation era, like the first train to Menzies Creek and various of those reopening trains along the way as they extended to Emerald and Lakeside and then on to Jembrook and was um, quite well known to drive it. I find it is all of the moving parts seem to be the freest moving in um, in 7A and I think that's it's had a lot of care and attention along the journey. 14, which has been um, converted to oil firing. So in an effort to continue operations deep into the summer months and into the fire danger period and try to reduce the fire danger from that locomotive, been fitted with an oil firing system that's very similar to those fitted to some of the Swiss locomotives. So it sounds quite a bit different and you need to run it with the blower. So it sounds a bit, it's a bit louder along the way. But to drive, it's it's very nice to drive. And that's the locomotive that I did my fireman's qualification on that, that loco. So it kind of holds some, uh, a bit of an emotional attachment for me. So that's probably the NA fleet. And then you've got the, the two Garrett's G42, which I always remember as Puffing Billy's Big Brother is one of the old books used to talk about it. And that, for me growing up, it, there, was, there was certainly a bit of status about it because it was brought back to the railway in the museum there, I think, in the late 60s or early 70s. And it sat there for a long time. And right throughout my childhood, I can remember that being worked on and restored. And, and it was one of the things that I worked on. They had these Wednesday work nights, which while I was at uni, I would go up to the workshops at Belgrave and work on the garret with its uh, the kind of final steps of its restoration up there. Just doing odd jobs like painting out the cab and all that sort of stuff and cleaning things down for, for testing and getting it all back together. So that that was a real honour to um, to be able to drive that and really enjoyed my time driving that one. At the moment is being taken by the South African garret, the NGG, NGG 16, number 129. That's something that I've driven on probably my last three shifts I think which has been a great experience getting to know it and actually seeing the kind of modern features and the the design changes that happened when G42 was built in 1926 and then the NGG16 was built I think about 1950 so it's quite a lot more modern than any other locos. Yeah no it's 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 amazing how diverse that range of locos are all, all the railways across Victoria from South Africa there's so much going on there. That's it, yeah, and it, it was quite an exercise to convert that. That was originally running on two-foot gauge track in South Africa, and we had to re-gauge it for two-foot six to run at Puffing Billy. So that was quite an exercise, moving the wheels out and all the motion and all that sort of stuff. It's credit to those involved in the design and the, and the work in the workshops to, to get it all to work. Tell us a little bit about the, the larger journey. So where do we start and where do we end? So the majority of our passengers start at Belgrave. Um, Belgrave is about 42 kilometres to the east of Melbourne and it's nestled in the foothills of the Mount Dandenong Ranges. From there, the line heads basically east, going through uh, Menzies Creek, which is the first major station. In Menzies Creek, there's a large museum that the railway has recently reopened and that gives you a history of basically the railway and there's also some unique 
rolling stock that you don't see anywhere else in Victoria. The railway then continues through Emerald, which is a reasonably large town, and then has a stop at the Emerald Lake Park uh, or Lakeside. This particular area was another real reason that the railway opens. So Carl Nobilius was a landowner, and he planted all sorts of weird and wonderful exotic plants that you generally don't see in that sort of area of the world. But the railway built a stop Nobilia Siding, it was called, because he was the landowner of the time. And the the plants would be loaded onto the trains to then get shipped back to Melbourne uh, to then be on sold onto nurseries. Um, so that unique plant species, agglomeration, whatever you want to call it, was the main reason that the Emerald Lake Park opened. There's a park, there's a lake, there's playgrounds and all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff, really good for young families. More recently, though, the railway has opened a visitor centre, Um, So that's got interpretive exhibitions and displays. We've got an artist at the moment who's doing Puffing Billy wildlife morphing crossover painting art, which I don't have the right words, but I hope I'm sort of painting in your mind, pardon the pun, just exactly what is going on in there. We've also got some large event spaces, so corporate people for a big day out sort of thing, tapping into the school market as well. So we're getting a lot of primary schools now that are going for a train ride from Belgrave to Lakeside and they're learning about how railways were run and it sort of ties in with the Australian curriculum. Um, Very popular, I think, with sort of kids that are sort of 9, 10, 11 years old. Lakeside's about the halfway point of the line and the line then continues through to Jembrook, which is another small town a couple of nice cafes and restaurants and all sorts of stuff. And the further you get from Melbourne, the the more the line opens up and the prettier it becomes. So after you leave Lakeside, you go through the Wright State Forest, which is very dense bushland. And then once you go through that and you're sort of climbing up the hill towards Jembrook, the land just opens out to the potato farms on one side. You can sort of see some of the Victorian Alps on the other side take a coat because it can get very windy and very cold but it is a very pretty area of the world yeah yeah leading on to that i think you and i can both agree like the danyong rangers it's special that there's no denial of that what is it like about this part of the world what does it do for you describe like when when you go there what's what's the feeling and what do you see i live in dense suburbia i've got a two-bedroom townhouse it's nice to be able to go out there relatively close and you've got this lovely, relatively untouched area of very beautiful scenery. And you just think, how lucky are we that we get to ride on a steam train that's 120 something years old through reasonably untouched natural beauty and see the smiles on the faces of everyone as they're going through and doing the same thing. There must be such a rush when you're out on the line and the countryside is whizzing by. Talk me through that. What's that energy like? That's another aspect that I, I really love. Once you sort of leave Belgrave, the, the engine is quite cool to start off with. It might sound a bit funny because you've got a hot burning fire in there, but it's it hasn't had much of a draft going through it, so it's not burning really brightly. It's what we kind of call a green fire because it's just it's just ready to start off and as you, you sort of head out of Belgrave it's basically you just pull out over the crossing and then it's basically downhill all the way down to the Mombok Creek trestle bridge the kind of famous trestle bridge 
you're really under braking as you're going down the hill and it's a beautiful spot there running through the forest you've got the ferns going past and it's quite a, a cool and damp part of the railway and as you're going down there you, you're sort of checking that everything's running well your fireman will look back and he'll confirm that the train's following in a, a safe and orderly manner and then you start warming through the cylinders so you're sort of opening up the regulator and, and allowing a bit of steam through the cylinders to warm everything up and then you come onto this big right hander and that's just before you burst out onto the trestle bridge where there's generally particularly in the mornings you'll have cars lined up all on the viewing platform and everything waiting for the train to come around so they can get all their photos and wave to their, their friends on the train yeah it's a real real joy to experience particularly in the cab i think we're all very very spoiled and always um, quite honored to be able to drive up there because it's a pretty unique experience up in the cab what would be your advice to someone who's considering volunteering at a tourist railway or at somewhere like puff billy without a doubt it'd be absolutely jump in go and do it there are so many aspects that you can get involved with a tourist and heritage railway whether it be on the the footplate driving or whether it be down the other end of the train uh, running as guard or doing a safe working like there's that's the operational side but then there's countless other opportunities there so you could be out on track and that's a really great way to understand what goes into the, the infrastructure, what goes into inspecting and maintaining the whole thing. Then you've got the booking office side of things, station master, kiosk sales or in the refreshment rooms, signal and telegraph side of things. And there's so many opportunities to get a bit of a grounding in a tourist railway. And then you can use that as a springboard into further employment, really assisting your move through life, whichever way, whichever way you want to go. Having some volunteering on your resume counts a lot future employers. They see that you've got that ability to get up and go and put yourself out there and play a real key role in the community. So go for it. Thank you, Lachlan, and thank you, Chris, for your insights on the inner workings of Puffin Billy. If you're interested in volunteering, we'll put a link in the episode description uh, for where you can find out more information. It is based in the Dandenong Ranges in Melbourne, Victoria, um, a fantastic place to volunteer. I've done it myself for about the good part of 10 years, and I would recommend it to anyone if you're a fan of trains, if you want to get involved in your local community. Um, it's a lot of fun, so do suss it out if it's something that you're interested in. But coming up now, we have our musical interlude. Uh, this week, we got Help by One Tram Band featuring Parva Productions. You're listening to the Right on Track podcast. We'll be back in a mo.
Hello everyone, welcome back to Lachlan's Model Railway Corner. This is part two of my interview with Will James. We continue talking about model railways, photography, YouTube, and all sorts of stuff like that. So yeah, let's just jump right back into it. So how do you go about making uh, scenery for your layout at all? Um, so it's something I haven't actually really... Well, no, I've only just started getting into it, so... Um, I'm going to address it in a video that's about yeah. coming out. So I finished the module that I started and I, I'm not that happy with it. It's fine. Um, it's all it's all learning. Like that's, I guess, the big thing. It's like I'm not going to be Luke Towen out the gate. Um, <laughs> and I think that's what we all forget. And it's something we should remind ourselves of. You've got to start somewhere and you've got to, you know, foam board is quite cheap. Um, get some foam board, get a static grass going, get some grout, you know, do all that stuff. Make a mess start again until you get it and and that's yeah i don't have the skills i don't ha not yet um it's all practice like i'm starting i know anyone listening to this can't see this but behind me is the new module which is going in um i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> i'm just gonna i'm gonna paint it brown and <laughs> put some grout on it yeah and, yeah and I, I suppose and, and hope it looks okay i suppose it's literally we all Practice makes perfect. That's that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, I'm no master modeler at all by any means. I just I just like it. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's what something I said. Um, another, I think it might have been another interview the other night. It was. I'm like, you just get out and start. Like, buy some cheap track, buy some stuff, and and start. Like, just make a little diorama. Um, as much as we all want, you know, this multi-level um, layout, which, which goes from, I don't know, for me, I want this suburban into country scene and, you know, it's got broad gauge and standard gauge and it's, you know, huge. I'm never going to have that. Let's, let's probably be realistic. But um, there's nothing stopping anyone making a, an ingle nook, I feel, or, you know, I, I was at the exhibition on the weekend. They had an ingle nook set up there and it was no bigger than a dresser top. Like, it was probably a metre long. And I'm like, anyone could have that, like, surely. Um, and I think that's what we need to stop and remind ourselves of is just if you want to get into it, you've got to start somewhere. And if you've got the room, if you've got the time, just have a go. And if it doesn't work, start again. And just, just don't buy $80 points and ruin them like some of us have. <laughs> um, that's it. Like, you know, I, I read articles. It was like, oh, Australian prototype track should be code 83 and i'm like oh sweet i'll buy a bunch of code 83 why i, I don't know i should have bought code 100 like it doesn't need to be code 83 i'm not building an exhibition layout like just buy normal stuff and and start from there and see where you go like yeah so i guess in answer to your question wait it was oh no <laughs> that was <the> question <laughs> yeah no that's all good I, I i've watched a couple of your videos and i put that i, I thought oh that might be a good question to ask because I, I saw what you had and i'm yeah. seeing it now it's like oh crap it's not there anymore <laughs> no it is it's it's over the side where oh, okay. it was originally and it's i put a bunch of static grass over it and that was heaps of fun and it made a big mess and i liked all that but nah just a module i'm not getting rid of it it's just gonna Probably just be a shunting, a little bit of what it was kind of was, but not. I'm not going to have what I what I set out to. I started filming the new video today about where it's going, what I'm doing in here, but yeah, kind of yeah. fallen off. <laughs> 
probably completely unrelated, like not a segue at all, but like, uh, mm. what techniques can you tell us about your photography, I guess? I'll tell you what I tell my new customers who are getting into photography. Go yeah. and take pictures. Don't worry about um, watching the big YouTubers, Instagrammers. Um, I think it's a good example. Peter McKinnon, right? Everyone watches Peter McKinnon who wants to get into photography. Great YouTube, good good photography. I'm not going to say he's the best um, by any means, but you know he comes across very well and very knowledgeable, and he is. And he sold cameras for years and years. Go and take photos. Don't worry about all the other stuff, all the accessories, all the accoutrement that goes with photography because it's a big money pit and you can spend as much money as you want but you might not be able to take a good picture i see all these customers come in with like leica m6s you know what 10 grand price tag without a lens um and they've bought it because it's a leica they don't know how to use it and i get a lot of uh rail fans coming in now because they found out where i work which is fine i have no issue with that um and they're like oh i want the gear you have or i want this massive gear and all this stuff i'm like why this is your first camera or this is your second camera. I'm like, don't worry about all that stuff. Go and take pictures. Go out, go through your settings, go practice. Um, I get a lot of, uh, especially younger um, photographers, uh, like, oh, the sun's in the wrong spot or this isn't fully in focus or all these like things that a lot of people nitpick about railway photography for some reason. Um, I say just post it. Post your photo. You went and took the photo, post it. Like, um, I look at a lot of older photos, like, you know, historical photos from, I don't know, from when cameras started to, you know, early digital. And they might not be technically this amazing photo or anything, but they're interesting. Um, And if they hadn't posted it, then we wouldn't know about it. Like, just take pictures, post them. um, And the best thing that someone looking at them can do is give them positive feedback. That's the other side of it. I see a lot of negativity um, about, for example, the sun issue. Like, oh, the sun's on the wrong side or um, the front of the loco is not lit up as well as some as the side. Who cares? Yeah. That person went out and took the photo. Cool. Good. Like, good on you for going and doing it. And I think that's the better takeaway is just, yeah, go and take photos. Go out, pick your day cool, I'm going to go to, I don't know, for us in Melbourne, I'm going to go to Jakarta. You can you can smash through photos there. You've got broad gauge and standard gauge that diverge together there. You're going to have a field day. Go and do it. Just go practice. Don't You don't even have to take photos of trains. Just take your camera, go and take photos. That is my best advice. Don't worry about your gear as long as you've got it. If all you've got is a phone, it's a good enough starting point. You can get reasonable photos off a phone. I, I, I'm a big stickler for when people come in and say, oh, why would you buy a camera? It's not as good as a phone. Real camera, I don't know, much better. But if you can't afford one, it's okay. If you've got a phone, you've got a camera. Go and take pictures. Start there. You can learn rule of thirds, or if you want to get technical, you can learn a Fibonacci sequence to take your photo. Cool. Good start. There we go. My best advice, go and take pictures. Literally just... What was that mean, Shia LaBeouf? Just do it! Yeah. It, it really is. Just like, go do it. That's the thing. Like I said, like, people come in, they get so hung up on, on gear and, you know, what's the best camera and what's the best video camera and all this stuff. And I'm like, don't worry about it. Just get something, like, that you can take pictures with. Yeah. It, it's, it seems to be the advice you have for, uh, 
what was it before we were just discussing scenery as well the scenery just just do it same same answer just, just go have, and do just it have a go. Like, don't, you don't have to go and get the best gear you don't have to go and get the premium ground flock or ballast or paints and all this other stuff just get what is in your budget what you can afford what you can start with and just start like don't worry about the, this is I guess part of the problem with social media is, is that we're quite easily potentially led astray um, that we do need all this this year but nah just go and start if you if you want to do it don't worry about um, other people or you know if you, if you might get some negative feedback or something just go and do it even if you don't you know you don't have to tell anyone <laughs> if you're really really self-conscious or anything but yeah if that if that's the takeaway for both questions let's go and do it <laughs> yeah so what was uh the inspiration for the layout you are building up at the moment i would say the current inspiration is just to have something um i need a background for my videos uh that's one part of it the other part is i do need something to film reviews with so i just need a nice scene that looks good when i photograph it I needed something that's portable. Now, the new, the new one that, once again, I know this is a podcast. No one can see what is sitting behind me, but you can. This, this whole green thing back here is just lifts up. The whole thing I can just pick up, take outside. Um, if anyone here watches Ken Patterson, for example, uh, What's Neat This Week podcast, which is a video cast, that's how he builds his layouts. It's just they're all removable, and that's kind of what I have to go with at the moment. So, um that's its purpose. Inspiration-wise, uh, I like suburban. I like city. I like urban, which is why a lot of photos and videos, especially at the moment that you see of real trains, are suburban. And it's not just because it's convenient to where I live. Um, I like that. I like that, you know, people usually see freight trains, for example, regionally. Ah, well, they're going to start from somewhere. Um, and, yeah, I think that's kind of what I want. Is, is suburban like that mix of, of suburban and regional but yeah i like industry i like that kind of thing so i think you know it, getting away from kind of that question about like what's the inspiration about the current stuff for now it's honestly just learning it's still learning um how wiring works like the the module i built in in the youtube video is overwired. like i've got way too many wires on it like i could have done it by about half and it's a mess. The new one, it'll be nice and neat and I'll have it a bit better. And that's that's part of that learning curve um, about learning what works and what doesn't. Um, but if I was, you know, to build a, a big layout, it would be suburban to, to regional, but with a nice big focus on suburbia. Like, depending on how familiar your, your listeners are with the Victorian model railway scene, there's a model railway that gets around a layout called Town and Country, which is set in a fictional part of Melbourne and it has a single line, I think it's single line working um, suburban line with a freight line as well. And it's really good. And I'm like, that's what I really like. And, and that's it's some sort of inspiration. Like the new module, spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the video that's currently not out, it'll have catenary and it'll have that, but that's not the focus of it. But I like that mix. Something that kind of, captures a little bit of everything all the freight hmm. all the suburban trains regional stuff 
Yeah, yeah. that's a good idea. I, I think something that that like we never saw in our lifetime, which our parents would have seen, was suburban freight. Like, and I think that's you still see it in the states and you see it in parts of Europe, but you don't see it here. Um, the closest thing we have in Melbourne is the Saddlers transfer uh, for like a or maybe the Apex or the cement train, but it used to be like quite common like you just had an e or an l going to a suburban siding that you know we don't have that anymore because we have trucks and that kind of thing and i really like that and i, I kind of wish yeah i think if i was build something i'd like to capture that okay yeah um yeah that, that, i like that yeah you what do you model you got british mainly yeah i have a lot of um british stuff sort of uh so with british they have it in um, different eras. So you've got era one, which is your pioneering very early stuff right up to, I think it's era 11 now, which you got all your current oh, stuff. Right. Um, I'm kind of the period three and four. So, um, kind of the, the merging of the, well, the, what's the word? The, the liquidating of all the smaller companies into the big four, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. big yeah. British companies. And is then the con- consolidation. Period or whatever. No, I think it's called right. that. Uh, but oh, I, I want to go yeah. <laughs> from the start of that, which is like 1923, right up to the very end, where just before they... Grouping. Grouping, that's it. And then privatisation, I think yep. the British railway era, era was called. Yeah. So at right. the moment, I've got I've got a lot of... Um, I don't. I don't have like. I don't like follow a suit. I just like. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. I'm going to get it. I don't yep. have a particular idea of. Uh, not nice. to get it. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. No, I've absolutely. Got... I think that's yeah, that's good. Yeah. Do you want to get into Australian stuff more? Because I know you bought the thirty-eight and you bought the D three. Although... I bought the thirty-eight. I bought both. Yeah. Uh, both thirty-eights actually, and the D three. Mm. Got my eye on the J at the moment. I might. You, you might want to move pretty quick. Yeah. Not many they're, left. They're going. They're going. I've seen a well, few. Apparently, rumor is there'll be a second run, but I don't know how much truth. I don't know how. I hope, I guess. I think a lot of people missed out on numbers that they wanted. Um, yeah, that was that was a thing. There's a few me. dress up kits to be, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, go on. Yeah, <laughs> mo- mostly for me because um, uh, it was probably the the most well known thing, and it was probably the most easy easy successful note though uh, as well uh, because I collect a lot of Hornby stuff. Which, again, mm. nothing wrong with that. If, you, if you're a fan of nope. it, go for it. And it's cheap as well. They're, that's they're, well, they're well made. Bang for your buck. Like, I mean, I guess that's the difference between us and them is, you know, a, they have a much bigger scene than we do and a lot more people buying it, hence why they can keep their costs down. Yeah. Uh, even with shipping to get it out here. Like, did, did, understand that. Did you see the 2022 range? I have watched... Uh, it's the magazine. It's Hornby... Magazine, magazine or whatever it is. I watched their their announcement, and um, that's great. That's great that they can announce that much. Um, I understand the pricing increase. Um, <laughs> yeah, they've still got it better than we do. Like their pricing is better than ours. Still, um, somehow, yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking like with the new, like my news, um, when I speak to manufacturers, that's usually on the phone is, is the, one of the first things I'll say is just manufacturing is not good at the moment. And no. Hence why we've got such massive delays or, you know, 
the price rises are happening and unfortunately there's nothing they can do and then that's without even looking at the shipping issue um depending on how much they're shipping so it was inevitable um it's unfortunate not what you can do I I, it's out of their hands and I, that's that's i don't know them and i can't vouch for hornby for example but i feel like it's them no different to the, the manufacturers i speak to it's out of their hands it's comes down to the manufacturer rather than them. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh well. They're still producing it, which is great. It might mean, you know, I, I guess, I don't know. They, they've got a basics range, though, which is something we don't have that, That's why anymore. I feel like uh, Australia Railway Models is going to be, it's going to be like... Well, absolutely. Yeah, it's going to be our version of uh, the Hornby Railroad because, I mean... Yeah. That- well, Le- Lima's back producing New South Wales railway coach, which is Hornby. True, um, yeah. Which didn't used to be. I mean, when I was growing up, Lima was, you know, an affordable model. Like, you could buy West Coast Railways B classes. You could buy GMs. You could buy S's. You could buy a few other bits and pieces that were close enough. They weren't prototype. They weren't as good as some of the others, but they were affordable. Um Nowadays, yeah, the closest is ARM. Um, but you don't have that for the diesels so much. Like, Austrains, I think, was the closest for a while. They had a basics range, which was the C classes and the others, which is now Austrains Neo, which is SDS, because they bought the tooling. Oh. Um, but even then, they're still... I think they've gone up a bit. Don't quote me on that, but I feel like they have gone up in price a bit, even though it's old, they're old models, like they're old tools, they're old molds. So yeah. it's, that's, that's the thing I kind of don't understand is how they re-release old tooling, but then they up the price. It might be because mm. it, it, it's in some sort of enhanced d- detail, like with um, printing or, I don't know, maybe better quality material, who knows? I, I don't know, and sometimes I don't feel it's... I think it might come down to something like shipping. And I understand inflation and and, and that kind of thing happens. Uh, working in the camera industry, I guess, I see it a lot. Um, yeah. Camera gear has gone up in the last two years by quite a bit um, due to a number of reasons. And they might be lenses that have been produced for the last 20 years and they've, got, they've had to go up. And, you know, unfortunately, just how it is. So, yeah, I saw Hornby's announcement. I saw their uh, <laughs> everyone's reaction to it, I think. I'm, Nicest I'm way to put it. Still going to try and maybe get one or two from this year. Hmm. Well, I see, I noticed with a lot of the British sellers, um, like you'll have Hornby come out or, or Buckman or Acuriscale or all the others. They come out with an RRP, but the second they come out, you have other businesses over there selling them for quite a bit less like they seem to have sales a lot more than than what our manufacturers have i mean once again i realize there's a lot less competition here than there is there but yeah i don't know i guess if you really want it you'll you'll jump on it straight away because nowadays things are getting produced in a lot more limited quantities that's right and you got to compete with uh scalpers and whatnot as well (laughs) yeah absolutely but then you also have the rise of 3D printing. That's the true. other side of it. Like, it's, it's kit building has kind of shifted. Like, I mean, I don't think kit building will ever go away, but 
3D printing now, it's like, oh, this rolling... St- maybe not so much for locomotive so much, but for rolling stock, it's like, oh, I really like this, this, I don't know, van. Oh, they've sold out. Oh, someone's put a 3D print up on Thingiverse and I've got a 3D printer or my mate's got a 3D printer. Like, you've now got that aspect of it. So I wonder where that's going to start affecting how manufacturers release things or... How they're going to compete with that, yeah. That might be looking too far into it, but... Yeah. So, you're part of... Uh, I always forget the name of it. Uh, AMARA? Uh, Australian Model Railway Association? Yeah, Australian Model Railway Association. You're part of that uh, club down in Melbourne, right? Yes, I am. Um, I've been in AMARA for the last four-ish years. Um, we used to go there when I was a kid for their open days a lot. Um, not a lot, annually. And... Yeah, then when I got back into it, I was like, oh, which club should I join? And I joined them. Um, they put on the bigger exhibition. It seemed to me logical. They offered a lot more days that I could be down there or that appealed to me. And yeah, I've been with them and quite enjoy it. Yeah. What else is there you can tell us about the um, club? Like uh, anything yeah. special that they do? Or So we've got two permanent layouts. We've got uh, HO Scale layout which is Stonington Valley uh it's 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 an ambiguous layout it's not quite American it's not quite English and it's not quite Australian there's elements of all three although I would say if I had to pick one majority of it is Australian with a touch more American um it's it's quite large and then we have a g-scale layout outside uh I, I don't have g-scale or live steam as much as I want it um Cannot afford it, um, but one day maybe. Um, we've got one outside, and then we've got a couple of exhibition layouts being Maribara, which is set in the 60s, uh, which is spectacular. The station is yeah, I think I've seen incredibly that. well built. It's a very fragile layout, so it doesn't come out very often. Um, hopefully, you'll see it this year, hopefully. Um, then we've got Murray, which has been on the exhibition scene for... I want to say 20 to 30 years. Been around a while. Um, it's just a tail chaser, which is set on, I guess, kind of bordery. Like it's it's Victoria meets New South Wales, Victoria meets South Australia. It's, it's a bit ambiguous in that respect. We have an annual exhibition, which is at Caulfield, which will be in August this year. Um, it, it's probably, I, I don't quote me on this, but it's probably one of the biggest in Australia. I don't want to say it's the biggest because I think Sydney might have the biggest, but uh, it's quite large. It's at a Caulfield Racecourse. It's, yeah, pretty big draw card for most modelers. A lot of layouts. It's a big venue. Um, Yeah. Then we have our main layout, which is the HO one, which I guess I'm there the most for. It is DC and DCC. We can switch between the two. Uh, So you'll have days where it's themed, for example, uh, DCC Australian or DC American or DCC British or DC American Steam. Yeah, so on on the website, there'll be a breakdown of what is running what days. And then we have juniors as well, which is, I guess, under 18s. Uh, you can come down. It's all supervised. Run trains. Learn how to operate the layout. It is advised if you are a younger person to go to that first so when you know you get a bit older you know how the layout works 
But if you're an adult and you want to join, you can come down. We're, I don't know, I can speak on behalf of the DCC crew. We're, we're pretty easy going. So if you want to come down and have a chat, have a look around. I think nowadays you can. Um, there was a period there where you couldn't. But yeah, um, that's us. That's the club. Yeah, that's really cool. I've definitely myself want to go and check it out at some point. Because I've, I've seen... Like, you're more than welcome to. Like, yeah, I... You do have to be a member to run trains, um, but if you are interested, oh look, I can give you a controller. You'll be all right. Um, yeah, it's 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 pretty casual. We're we're pretty relaxed. We're all a pretty young bunch. Um, not not too strict. <laughs> yeah, about everything. So yeah, it's easy going, man. Yeah, well, that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I treat it. I I, I feel like it's more of a social club more than anything. Like I'll bring. I used to bring like boxes and boxes of of trains and put them all out on the track and be like, yeah, and then just not end up running more than half. Then I'm just talking to someone or people. Currently just, the problem I have, I'll pack uh, everything into a box and take it and just run two trains. Yep. Well, I've learned, I've learned that, the, not the hard way, but now I just take one. I'm just like, yep, I'm going to take, bring this consist along and I'm just going to run that and have a chat. And that's, that's like my favorite part of that. It's just, it's a social club. It's social interaction and, yeah. Like-minded people, it doesn't matter what background you come from, anything like that. You're there for one reason. You're not there to talk about anything else that's going on. Well, yeah. Yeah, with it. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and that's it. And that was that's why I like it. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Kind of the point of, um, uh, like, every, everyone I talk to who isn't part, like, they collect model trains but isn't part of a club, I always try to encourage them to get involved with something like that because it's... Good. It's good for it not only learning about model trains and playing with model trains, but you make friends and whatnot as well. Mm. So definitely something I do Absolutely. want to take a deeper dive That's... into at some point on totally. this podcast. Like, I've been able to, you know, if I've got stuck with something, whether it's programming or I've wired something wrong, I've now got people I can just call, text, and just be like, hey, what's wrong with it? What have I done wrong? Or like, you know, how do I fix this? Or how did you do that? And... I've got, you know, those people are all there now. I mean, we, we do live in a world of social media and there's Facebook groups, but sometimes, you know, you get, no, oh, it's not always the most helpful. But with the club, I don't know, I've, I've found some good mates and I can't recommend enough, like you just said, to other people, join your local club. Yeah, Go yeah. down there, have a chat. And it's a thing now more than ever because of uh, isolation, we're going to be, uh, you know, well, not really anymore, but, uh, not really go getting out and socialising. There's no better excuse to get out and talk to people. Absolutely. Do you perhaps any have any uh, advice for younger people getting into, or people just starting mm. to get into Australian model railways in any form? Yeah, don't don't be put off by the price. Um, you you can look at the stuff that you know. I I'm a little bit older now, and and I've got a full time job, and I I don't really I don't have. You know, I can spend the money on this and, and you know, you look at social media, I'm like, you know, I, I bought a D3 the other day and that's great. I, I'm an adult, you know, I, I can do that. If you're a younger person and you follow people like me or, or anyone else, don't think that you have to buy that stuff. You do not. Start basic. Start, I started with a lifelike kit, um, one of the ones that came in a box for Christmas, had a... Australian National GM, which was like a, a I'm going to get it wrong, an F7, a, one of the American streamliners. They're way too short to be a GM. 
and, and like a twisties van and, and some other stuff. And it was, you know, it's just toy. But that's what you start with. You know what? I think I actually have that one laying about somewhere. That was one of my first uh, yeah, sets Yeah, I keep needing well. to bring it down because I'm like, I've still got it. And I'm like, well, I had to start somewhere. Yeah. And you look at, you know, I look at some older modelers or even people my own age who have got far bigger collections than mine. And I'm like, oh, man, that'd be great. But I know, you know... I'll get there eventually, you know. Got other things to do. So, for younger modelers, my best suggestion, if you've got a club near you that does juniors, like ours does, join it. Um, if they don't have juniors and, you know, you've got to go down with a parent, go down there with a parent. If you can't do that, you know, oh, um, uh, find a way. Find, find a way to get into it. Um, but don't be put off by the investment like i get a lot of people saying i'd love to get a dcc but it costs too much cool my club does dcc it didn't cost me any extra to, to to go and use their set until i could find i bought a second hand set like that's the other thing like you don't have to buy brand new people are always switching stuff like it's not that much can go wrong with a model train in a, realistically like you can go and test them so second hand stuff it's always there um always where I, I buy second hand um that's always a good tip but start basic we're not all going to have a huge collection out the gate you've got to start somewhere so if you can save up for your first loco and some rolling stock cool and and that's the other thing buy rolling stock don't just buy locos because it's it's great having 27 locos and four carriages but it should be the other way around you know like don't don't get carried away with the new releases and, and it kind of sucks because a lot of the new releases are limited what can we expect to see from Will James in 2022. So I think what you'll see for this year, you'll see a lot more trip reports. I've got three booked for next month alone. So that's riding heritage trips. Uh, you'll see a lot more exhibition coverage. Obviously, you'll still see the model railway news come out uh, at the start of every month as that's probably the most popular. Uh, you'll see the compilations of Trains I Catch throughout the month. That'll keep coming out the week after the news comes out um i'd love to start doing more or actually start doing uh, layout tours um that was all kind of good to go last year but then covid happened uh again and that all got thrown under the bus um hopefully that comes out so yeah layout tours is something i really want to do is because it's like you see them in the magazines it's great I'd like to showcase them a bit more, a bit more in depth, um, show off more of what people have created. Um, I think you'll also see, I'd like to start doing interviews um, maybe with people who are really good at weathering or really good at scenery and just maybe try and interview them or shoot a video with them if they're not comfortable with talking to a camera. I totally understand that. It can be very daunting. Um, but like show people, oh, this is how this person does it and it's not that hard. And Because, yeah, you, you read a lot of articles or see videos like, oh, you need to have all this gear and you need the airbrush. And Well, how do you use the airbrush? How do you use the airbrush? Oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind doing more interviews. I think that's something I'd like to do maybe later on. But at the moment, trip reports, news, exhibitions, reviews. I, I've got a couple I'm working on, um, hopefully a few more in the year, depending on what comes out, what I purchase. Um, yeah, so should be quite a bit of content, I guess, on the way. Right, yeah, it definitely sounds like yeah. some um, 
pretty exciting stuff that you got in the pipeline. Hopefully. Sound, yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Um, where can we find you? You can find me on YouTube. Um, that is probably one of the easiest ways. You can, if you just go Will James Railways, it comes up as the first search. Uh, you can find me, I have a website, which is willjamesrailway.com. Uh, that's got my all my photos. It's got blog. It's got merch. Uh, if you after any railway gear, um, I've got Facebook and Instagram. Same thing. Will James Railway just comes up. Yeah, that's the easiest way to find me. Right. Cool. Everyone, make sure you go check out Will James. He's got some good stuff happening. Um, thanks for coming on. Thank you for being. Thank you for having this. me. Thank you for having this. Me letting letting me ramble on for about stuff <laughs> plus i feel like i didn't mention thomas enough which is well isn't, isn't uh, that what i'm supposed to be well not about? really um I'm, no that's I'm, okay yeah, i'm yeah, just double fine. checking like i yeah, feel yeah. like um, i was like oh if, if you ever notice in the background of my videos i've got a james um yeah i did i did uh, yeah there is a james behind me um, I, I, I thought oh, the, is, is it's, it, a, is, it's is, a money thing it's oh, a coin bank yeah, it's, a, it's like an enamel one. I, I <laughs> saw I've that. I'm like, can't you have that because his name is James? It, it part, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of made sense, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I suppose we'll uh, finish off with that. Will James, thank you very much for coming on. Not a problem. Thank you very much for having me. And that was my chat with Will James. I definitely hope to have him back on at some point in the very near future. Maybe when he's reaching another milestone, I don't know. But thank you so much, Will James, for coming on. You may hear more from him. You, you Actually, you definitely will hear more from him in the future. I caught up with him uh, at my local Model Railway exhibition. I'm hoping to get that done and then we can get that out there. He, he travels around to all sorts of Model Railway exhibitions, uh, talks to people, takes videos. He's always a great chat. Always good to good to have a chat to. He will be back on hopefully for another one I've got lined up. But like for a proper interview. Congratulations to five thousand subscribers and thank you so much for everything you've done in not only the Australian model railway community but the Victorian model railway and just general railway community. Will thank you so much for all the work you do. And with that. I will see you guys next time on another podcast episode. Thank you. See you later. Thank you, Lachlan, for that awesome segment. And uh, thank you, Will James, for coming onto the podcast. It was great to have you on board and great to shine some light more on some of the Australian end of the model train community. And that's all we've got time for, for episode 68 of Right on Track. But tune in for episode 69. We won't guarantee when it will be, but it will be fun. I'm sure of that. I've been Tom Denham, and this has been the Right on Track podcast. See you later. You've been listening to Right on Track. This podcast was hosted by Connor Jonas, Tom Parry, Lachlan Kyle, and Tom Denham. The audio producers for this podcast were Jason Evans, Harry Hughes, Ashley DeGroot, and Frederick French Prouts. The supervising producers are Connor Jonas and Tom Parry. The executive producer is Tom Denham. Visit rideontrackpodcast.org for more information plus bonus material 
and be sure to follow us on social media on Facebook at facebook.com slash right on track Thomas podcast on Twitter at on track Thomas and Instagram at right on track podcast.